Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like the one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me, you have made me a hard to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in abandon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The word of the Lord. Well, welcome on that cheery note to the painted door. If you're new, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. A quick update for you all on our new church home, on all things church home. I am told, or at least I was told a couple of days ago, that our doors, our front entry doors, have arrived in Chicago. <clears throat> so hopefully those will be installed before our gathering uh, next week. I'm likewise told that uh, this week we will finally be getting to some of the lighting situation in here. Uh, it's Beautiful space with lots of natural light, and we don't want to desecrate that with fluorescence any longer. So we have plans to remedy that situation. So the wheels are in motion. Uh, We're kind of in that interesting time that you're familiar with when you first move into a new house or apartment, and you get to the process of turning that space into a home. Uh, And that's the process that we all are in now. We're here. We're in this new church house, as it were, uh, and we very much want to turn it into a home. You do that in your own homes in order to provide a sense of place with which you can then invite others into your life. Place matters, and when you curate a place well to demonstrate the culture of your own values you then have a clear opportunity to welcome people into that culture. When people step into your home, they step into the ethos of your life. 
uh, and we very much want to use this church home for that purpose. We want to welcome people from the community to our congregational life of faith, into our congregational life of faith. We want to use this central church home for that, as well as using all of our individual homes and welcoming people into our individual lives as much as our communal life. So that process is in motion. Bear with us as we continue to complete the space here. We're well on our way to that end. We're also well on our way uh, to paying for it. So that's good, encouraging news. We set out... Okay, you can cheer. Um, You may not cheer once you hear the actual numbers, but... um, We set out to raise $80,000 to complete this move into this space. To date, we've raised $46,000 of that. So, yeah, I think that's still probably worth cheering for. Um, And our goal, we have $34,000 left to reach our initial goal, and we believe we can hit that by June. Uh, I think that's actually conservative, that we'd be able to hit that by June, and then we'd have everything paid for, and we'd just be able to move forward as a community. Uh, So appreciate all the help that we can get in that end. If you'd like to give toward that building fund, you can do so at tpd.fund uh, or by just dropping a, a check in the, the offering basket, right, building fund in the memo line. Okay, enough throat clearing. Here's where we are going today. We are looking again at a psalm of lament. We just read it a moment ago. Uh, the psalms of lament are those prayers and songs offered to us in Scripture that meet us in the hardest places of life, that come out of the hardest seasons of life. And we've been looking at the Psalms of Lament really throughout the Lenten season, even before the start of the Lenten season, but throughout especially this Lenten season, these 40 days leading up to the celebration of Easter, these 40 days of preparation where we get ready for the resurrection and celebration of Easter. So you may be happy to know that this week, actually, is our last week in the laments. Some of you might cheer. Some of you might groan, depending on your disposition. I'll hear about it either way. Um, (laughs) So next week, we are moving into Palm Sunday, and so we will look at the royal psalms, the so-called royal psalms, those psalms that deal with the kingship of God among his people. And then the following week, two weeks from today, is Easter Sunday, which will usher in the 50-day celebratory season of Eastertide, wherein we will be looking at the psalms of thanksgiving and the psalms of praise. And our musicians have been tasked to prepare music for a season of celebration, a season of praise, a season of thanksgiving. Yes, church, we are going to rejoice. Uh, It might get a little crazy in here. Uh, You never know. Someone might tap their foot or even just want to give you fair warning, clap their hands. Now, (laughs) you might want to look for another church before that happens, Uh, but I know we are a somber church, uh, and yet rejoicing is an essential part of the Christian life of faith, and God is leading us into a season where we are going to practice that, if only on feeble legs, Uh, but our God is a miraculous God who does great 
miracles like make the painted door sing. So that's where we're headed. You have fair warning. Uh, You're welcome to join us in that or not. Okay, so today on this uh, last week of hibernating, as it were, uh, in the laments, I want us to use this lament to stir our hearts in some way with expectation for that coming celebratory season of Eastertide. And that's going to be a bit of a challenge because the psalm of lament that we are looking at today is Psalm 88, which you just all heard, read aloud a moment ago. And Psalm 88, some of you may be familiar with it, is without question the most lamentful psalm. Uh, It's actually the only psalm out of all 150 that never turns. It's the only psalm that just repeats a drumbeat of despair and unanswered prayer from its opening lines all the way to its close. There is no light offered. There is no hopeful turn offered. And it's unique in that respect. Every other psalm of lament at some point turns a corner and offers some glimpse of light, some glimpse of hope. But Psalm 88, really what it's about is unanswered prayer and the despair of that. Okay, so how are we going to get from a psalm like that, a lament like that, into a place of being stirred up with anticipation for the celebratory season of Eastertide. Well, maybe we could start by each one of us looking into our own lives and considering the question of how it is that we approach dark moments in our lives. How is it that you navigate through the trials and difficulties of your life? What do you do when life starts falling apart? when the circumstances start to overwhelm you. I can speak for my part that I have really two kind of primary tendencies of where I go when things start to get dark, places where I go when things start to get dark. And the first one, the most common place that I go is isolation. So when things get hard, when... The stuff hits the fan. Uh, I tend to withdraw and close myself off from relationship. Relationship becomes sort of the last thing that I want when I'm in a hard or dark place. And it doesn't mean that I necessarily withdraw physically. Might still be present physically in my duties as a husband and a father and a pastor and whatever else, lawnmower. But I withdraw emotionally. That is to say, I stop offering my thoughts or my feelings to other people in a vulnerable way. I turn inward. One of the places that I tend to go most often when life gets hard. There's a second place that I will often go when life gets dark or hard, and that is to grasp after 
cold explanations, kind of mechanistic explanations for why it is that life is bleak or why it is that darkness is surrounding me. Uh, I look for, say, a theological or a philosophical reason to make sense of what's happening in my life. And the reason I think that I do that is because if I'm able to put the puzzle of life together in a semi-coherent way, that allows me, in essence, to step outside of the story of my own life, to sort of position myself over the story of my own life, to become the puzzle maker rather than simply a character in the hands of another puzzle maker. And so I can approach the difficulties or the dark seasons of my life with a kind of sage stoicism sort of floating above it all, not having to feel the full weight of it because I've removed myself from it. I've put myself in a place of control, or at least feigned control. I've sort of mastered a meta-understanding. I'm playing the role of God, as it were. Now, I know that I'm not the only one who does these things. Um, I know that many of you, likewise, move to coping mechanisms of this sort in the face of darkness or hard seasons or trials. Perhaps your tendencies are slightly different than mine, some modified version of what are my most natural tendencies. But what we all have in common is when hard seasons come, when dark seasons come, we want to withdraw. All of our coping mechanisms are about escape. We don't want to face the hardest things of life. We don't want to face the most sorrowful things of life. We don't want to look into the face of despair. And so we run from it in various ways. Perhaps for some of you, that looks more like anesthesia, turning to things like food or alcohol or sex or exercise or religion or Netflix or Spotify. All of those things are good things, but we can use them to numb ourselves to the pain and challenge and darkness of life. Now, don't get me wrong here. I don't think that numbing ourselves or withdrawing is necessarily an evil thing. In fact, I think oftentimes we need to hit the pause button on life. We need to take a break from the weighty and heavy things of life. But it's important to recognize that anything that allows you to withdraw or disengage from your life is just a pause button. That's all it is. It won't allow for forward movement. And when life comes back to being unpaused, the dark, hard thing that you were meaning to escape will still be there for you to face. It's not going anywhere. And so because of that reality, some people will live all of their days, they'll spend all of their days on pause rather than face the pain of real life. And that is a tragic thing because life is well worth pressing play. 
So what I love about Psalm 88 is that it offers us no pause button. (laughs) Psalm 88 is there for us when we've had enough of pressing pause. It's there for us when we are willing to face the difficulties, the challenges, the trials, the hardships of our life. And it's offered to us, here, here you go, as a guide to walk into those dark places in an unflinching way, to press play, as it were. Psalm 88 is really three unanswered prayers offered in succession. The first prayer of Psalm 88 starts at the open. It's the longest of the three unanswered prayers. It reads like this, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim with sorrow. Okay, this is the first of these three unanswered prayers. It is a plea for rescue, a plea that God would pull this person out from this near-death situation. And the psalmist here seems to indicate that he's been offering this prayer for some time. There's an illusion here in the text that it's as though he is banging his head against a brick wall and there's no give. God is not relenting. He's not responding. He's not answering this desperate prayer from the psalmist. So much so that the psalmist here begins to blame God for the circumstances of his life, for the hardships that he's facing. He says, you put me in the pit. It's your wrath that lies heavy on me. You overwhelm me. You made my friends shun me. This is a person despairing in the face of unanswered prayer. And the way Psalm 88 works is it uses repetition to make more palpable this despair, this despair of unanswered prayer. So the psalmist then offers this second prayer, beginning in the middle of verse 9, where he says, Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you, do your work, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Here, the prayer takes a bit of a different turn because now the psalmist is moving from lobbing accusations against God for putting him in this dark place to now making a sort of question-based argument. He's arguing with God, what good does any of this 
darkness in my life do for anybody? What does this accomplish? Why are you leaving me here? Do dead, crushed people bring you any glory? Do dead, crushed people serve you or praise you? What possibly is the purpose of all of this? Can you relate to that kind of question-based argument from a relational perspective in any way? In other words, have you ever found yourself in relationship maybe with a friend or perhaps even your spouse or a family member where they are acting in such a way that you feel perpetually betrayed or hurt And you get to this place where you just want to say to them, why are you even still here? Why are you doing this? What good is this accomplishing? Are you even interested in this friendship? Are you even interested in trying to salvage this marriage? What's the point of all this? It is sort of a despairing Hail Mary Literally. Can this even be salvaged? Is it even worth repairing this relationship? And then the psalmist moves for a third and final time, and that drumbeat of unanswered prayer thumps again. He prays this, But O Lord, but I, O Lord, cry to you, In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me, afflicted and close to death from my youth up? I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness." Say what you will about whether there is any faith in these prayers. We could probably debate back and forth on that. But what you have to acknowledge in these three prayers of Psalm 88 is that this psalmist is looking squarely in the face of his despair and squarely in the face of God. That this psalmist is fully engaged in the pain, in the agony, in the hurt, in the suffering, in the sorrow of this moment that he finds himself in. For the uninitiated in Americana, you may not know, today is opening day of baseball season. (laughs) Some of you care. We're kind of arty church, so most of you don't. Um, But I care. Uh, And tomorrow is opening day for that other team in our great city. They're called the White Sox. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of them. Um, Again, I may be the only one who cares. Uh, But I have a secret that I want to share with all of you, and I'm going to share it in confidence And I need you to hold this in confidence. If word gets out, I'll know who to come ask. It'll be one of you. 
But tomorrow, opening day of sock season, I am going to my son's school. He's seven. Pulling him out early in front of all of his friends with white socks hats on, and we're going to opening day. <laughs> and we're going to stick it to all his friends. You know? <laughs> now, this is just between us. So he's off in the children's rooms now, so don't ruin it, all right? I'm trusting you, okay? Now, the question is, why am I doing this? The white socks stink, okay? The white socks are in a very dark place right now, um, from a baseball perspective. Uh, to give you some idea, they will be lucky to eclipse the 70 win mark this season. Um, and I'm told, I hear through the grapevine, that there's, I guess, like a good team in this city too. I've, I don't really know. I don't pay much attention to what's happening on Frat Row, I mean Wrigleyville. Um, but apparently there's an opportunity for me to introduce my son to a winning team in our city right now, and some people might argue that I am engaging in a sort of parental malpractice to be biasing my son toward the pathetic White Sox right now, turning him into a White Sox fan. So why am I doing this? Well, it's certainly not uh, to ascend to some level of great fatherly sacrifice or something. It's not to be a great dad, per se. Uh, If I were a great dad, I'd take him to Wrigleyville. I know that. Uh, But the main reason that I am taking my my son to Sox Park tomorrow, and my socks, I'll wear socks, um, (laughs) is that I want relationship with my son. That is to say, I want him to have the same experiences that I have. I want him to participate in my story with me. And I want to do that with him in good times and in bad times, as the marriage vow puts it. And so I'm welcoming him into these dark days of being a Sox fan. And actually, if you don't know my son, um, he's hilarious. Uh, just the other day, to give you some idea, we were getting ready for school in the morning. All of our kids have to be at school at 7.45 a.m. in the morning. Um, and so we were running out of time, and Bodie, my seven-year-old's younger brother, my seven-year-old is Micah, his younger brother Bodie was not going to have enough time, it appeared, to finish his Cheerios. Um, toasted oats, I think, actually. Thank you, Aldi. Um, <clears throat> and I looked over in the kitchen, and Micah, my seven-year-old, was standing there with hands on his hips, bent forward at the waist, staring intently into the clock on our oven. And I said, Micah, what are you doing? And he said, if you stare at the clock, it goes slower. <laughs> so I'm giving Bodhi more time. <laughs> act of innocent self-sacrifice. Point is, this is a kid that I want to know. This is a kid that I want to be in relationship with. He's someone worth knowing. And the relationship between a father and a child is a special and powerful thing 
which is, I think, why so many of us actually have daddy issues, because the relationship between a father and a child is such a powerful thing. There is so much opportunity for deep connection there, but also opportunity for deep hurt there. It's an incredibly vulnerable relationship for a child. And in Psalm 88, what we have actually is a person of faith, someone who knows God, someone who values knowing God, walking into the darkest nights of life with his dad, with his father. In Psalm 88, the psalmist has, in essence, climbed up into his dad's lap and is pounding on his chest, demanding some relief from the darkest night that he's walking through. The fact that this psalm is given to us in the pages of the Christian Bible, that it's offered for us to pray, for us to sing, for us to read, it's an indication that we are being invited into that same kind of risky and volatile relationship with our Heavenly Father. That God is bidding us to be that close with him. The great church father, Augustine, speculated that Psalm 88 was a prophetic encapsulation of the prayers that Jesus offered as he moved through the stations of the cross, as he went to crucifixion and laid down his life. That may well be true. We know quite well, that Jesus certainly knew this psalm. He knew Psalm 88. He was raised as a Jew, memorized the Psalter growing up as a Jew, certainly had these words of prayer at his disposal as he went to the cross. And it was in a relationship with his father that was this raw and this engaged that Jesus was able to endure the cross, that he was able to endure that darkest night all the way to the dawn. If you want to know the joy of resurrection, you have to know God. God is our Father, who raises the dead. If you want true joy, you have to know him. You have to know him as your father. There is no knowledge of God to be had in a detached, puzzle-making, stoic sort of living. If you insist on life always being positive. That's a fraud. And God is not a fraud. God lives in the places of what is real. And he invites you into those places with him. That you would know him truly in those dark nights and likewise then in the dawn. If you insist on never facing the darkness, 
you will never know the light or joy of God. The 19th century English writer Marianne Evans, who for various political and social reasons went by the pen name George Eliot, um, once said, what we call our despair is often only the painful eagerness of unfed hope. Read that again. What we call our despair is often only the painful eagerness of unfed hope. If she's right, that means that the despair of our unanswered prayers is truly a hunger for hope. And the hunger for hope is not one that we ever need be rid of. The hunger for hope is a glorious human gift. It's one of the best things about us. In running from our despair, in running from the hard things of life, in withdrawing, pushing the pause button in perpetuity from the most broken places, we cut ourselves off, we quench that appetite, we sate that longing, that hunger for hope. God promises that our hope will not be put to shame. Our hunger for hope is a hunger for the God of all hope. And the God of all hope is faithful to feed those who hunger. So yes, this life is laden with dark moments and broken things. Psalm 88 prayers are certainly to be in your heart in times and seasons, and may occasionally make it to your mouth. People will hurt you. Your spouse will betray you. You'll fail to live up to your own ideals. And in those moments, it's going to seem as though all of your prayers are being left unanswered. But take heart. The despair of all of that is an open mouth that is eagerly awaiting and anticipating the meal of hope. And our Father will stop at nothing to see that we are fed. There is a dawn of praise and thanksgiving for the people of God. Only don't spurn the night. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us even amid the times and places when we are sure that you have stopped hearing us. We thank you for your promises to meet our longings for hope, our unfed hunger for hope with the meal of Christ. We thank you that you are the one who fills us, that you are the one who leads us into joy and praise and thanksgiving, that we have no need to get ourselves there through fraudulent shortcuts or pretense. We pray that you would meet us in our darkest nights and lead us into joyous dawns. For your namesake.
We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.